the Golden Lion Tamarins and 13 Gold Monkeys did talk. And, you know, they're kind of small. And I told people they don't do this, really. But, you know, this kind of uh, talking thing is something scientists often do. They try to figure out what their subjects would say if they could talk. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind their stories, the writing process, and any other miscellaneous writing stuff that we decide to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Benjamin Beck, a published author many times over and a scientist emeritus with the Smithsonian Institute. He earned his degrees at Union College and Boston University and then received his Ph.D. from the University of Chicago. Dr. Beck spent his career in the field of animal cognition and biodiversity conservation, first working as a curator for Brookfield Zoo and later the Smithsonian Institution's National Zoo. Ben was involved in reintroducing a group of captive-born golden lion tamarind monkeys into the wild rainforests of Brazil, an experience which was the subject of his first fiction novel, 13 Gold Monkeys. That book was noted in an NPR series that Melissa Block did regarding the monkeys in Brazil. His latest novel, Ape, was published by Saltwater Media in December 2015, and Ape focuses on the chimpanzees of the Gishwadi Forest in Rwanda, as well as issues of animal rights, responsibilities, and animal thought. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks, Stephanie. Great to be here. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to have you here, simply because one of the first things that comes to mind when I, when I think of you is that you have this really impressive list of accomplishments. I mean, you've authored studies and papers and, you know, not scientific novels as well. And you've been involved in all sorts of incredible conservation efforts and in multiple countries and continents and all that sort of thing. And I sort of feel like you're, you're my personal Indiana Jones sometimes, but, uh, I just was wanted to kind of touch on the fact that the, the travels and the, the, ex- the education, the experience and all that, I mean, that has got to be a lot of grist for the writing mill for you. Well, it has been. I've been really fortunate and privileged to have such a wonderful ride um, and to be able to participate in what I think were meaningful projects on at least three different continents. Um, and you're right, it is grist for, for writing, but for most of my career, most of the writing was scientific, as you said, scientific papers, books, edited volumes. And when I got to this stage in my career of uh, semi-retirement, I realized that there were a lot of backstories, a lot of people that I met, and a lot of places that I had seen, and smells and sights that just don't come through in those scientific papers. And I had a craving to be able to get that stuff out there, in part because I wanted to interest, especially young people, in the kinds of work that I had had the privilege to participate in. I mean, after all, um, we're all stewards of this planet. Um, I'm going to be succeeded soon, and I, I really would like to motivate young scientists to get out there and study this incredible planet that we live on and help to save it. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things that um, kind of really struck me because I, I hadn't really had didn't have an appreciation for how many studies, papers, articles 
books that you would really put out until I started, you know, doing some research, um, you know, for this podcast. And then to know that you made this switch from that very fact, scientific footnote type of, I would almost say maybe even a rigid sort of formulaic thing. And then all of a sudden you've made this, uh, you, you kind of went to the other side of the brain really, and then went into these pretty detailed fiction novels for, you know, for that process. And I was just thinking like, you know, how, how, how did you translate that from one side to the other? Um, it was remarkably easy, but you're right. It is quite a jump. Um, of course, the audience is totally different. When you're writing scientific papers, you're writing for your peers, for your colleagues. You're being judged by them. Your work's being judged by them. That's the key to your promotional path. It's the key to your legacy as a scientist. Um, so you have a totally different audience with novels because you're writing for people that you may not even ever know or, or see. Um, and so, and you're writing for people who are, are have arrived at your book out of interest, rather than out of a uh, a career obligation. So that was number one. Number two, as you say, um, having the freedom to take some liberties with facts is great fun. It, it also is it takes a certain amount of responsibility because people say, well, this guy's a scientist. He must be telling the truth. So I have to be really careful to put some disclaimers in there so that people don't go running off taking the fiction in my novels and thinking that it's factual, completely factual. Uh, and finding the right blend between the scientific facts in order to motivate people to what this business is all about and finding the the kind of fictional blockbusters to keep people's interests um, is a really fine balance. And then the third big difference is, as a novelist, you're working alone. You're by yourself. Whereas the scientific work is always done with colleagues. It's reviewed by colleagues. The work is done with colleagues. You don't work individually. It's written with colleagues. And as I say, the novel, you're by yourself. You and your computer and, and your dog, and that's it. As a, it's a solitary craft. <clears throat> I wanted to ask, I feel like there's two kinds of precision that you're, that you're switching between when you're writing scientifically and when you're writing fiction. I mean, you still... You don't have to just be precise with the language. You also have to be precise with the like the story arc. I mean, if you're going to put a good story together, it's it's not it's not haphazard. So, I think what's what's interesting about switching back between the two is a as you were saying before, you're not getting that quasi immediately feed, uh, immediate feedback. So you're not grabbing somebody in the hall and saying, "Hey, this is what I found. I'm thinking about talking about it this way." And they'll say, "Well, do you mean this or do you mean this?" right? Which is something that you don't get until after the book is over. But on the other side, you don't have to work to keep anybody's interest in a scientific paper because they are already they wanted they're scanning it for new facts. They're like, "Okay, where are the new facts that he's bringing to the table?" Exactly. I mean, I mean, scientific, I think you use the term formulaic, and it is formulaic, so that your readers can get at the new information very quickly. So when you write a scientific paper, there's the introduction, 
Um, there's the methods, there's the results, there's a the discussion, there's the bibliography, you know. Um, it's very formulaic, and your readers come to know that formula and are able to extract your, your facts and your major points very quickly. So you have to be precise and faithful to that formula. Once you get to the novel, <clears throat> the doors are wide open. And uh, one, of the, one of the great, I think probably the greatest part of it is just this sense of being able to create something, like creating a character. Some of the characters in my book are based on very closely on real people in my books, but others I've created, or actually, as I write, they kind of create themselves. They fall. That's, that's that was the, they fall in between the the, the fe- you 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 establish these two these two points, and they fill in the middle the middle of those yeah as i envision a, a discussion for example between two characters i can say to myself she would never say that right she, she would just never say that what would she say if she was challenged that way by a policeman and uh, so that's the fun part of it and you never know where that's coming from you sit down to write and you just never know when it's going to come and how it's going to come well, i think i remember you and i had even a conversation about um there's a particular character in ape and one of your friends read the book and was like well does she have a boyfriend would she have a boyfriend would she have a girlfriend and then you were like that's not what she thinks. That's not where she is. She's about the science. And I remember you and I, and you were very clear that this person or this character was very clear in your mind as far as how she came to life on paper and how she was moving herself through the novel and what her motivations were. Like she was exceptionally clear to you. Yeah. Alicia is based on, um, she's a conglomerate of three or four different people. I know, um, several, uh, a, a researcher, two research assistants that I worked with in Brazil, and a bartender that I met in Jamaica. <laughs> she, she's we just, all have a Jamaican bartender story. <laughs> really? She's just a conglomerate. And she appeared in the first book, 13 Gold Monkeys, as a research assistant. And you could sense her, she was all business and very, very serious. And then she decided to make a career out of conservation and studying primates, monkeys and apes. She went off and got her PhD or was working on her PhD between the two books. She comes back in ape as the lead character, as a lead scientist. And she's all business. She's very serious. She wants to get this information. She wants to get her thesis done. She wants to publish papers, be accepted in the scientific community. And when somebody asked me about boyfriend, it was like, well, she doesn't have time for any love interests. Right. And and she wouldn't be. As a matter of fact, there was a guy in Brazil that proposed to her, an older man who proposed her her and promised to set her up as the dona of his ranch. And she could have lived her life, you know, a life of ease. But no way. She wasn't going to fall for that at all. And when somebody finally asked me the question about the love interest, I said to myself, crap, she hasn't even told me whether she's straight or gay. Right. I didn't even know. Right. Like, that's that's how clear she was, you know? Like, it was just like, she was just adamant that way. And what I, I, I wanted to kind of go back for a second, because as you were talking, something kind of sparked me to go back. So as you made this shift from the scientific, rigid, formulaic 
writing and then you were like, okay, I'm going to try my hand at fiction. So the first novel that you tried your hand with at fiction was 13 Gold Monkeys. And then um, as you you and I began talking about the second book with, with Ape, as you were writing it, um, I believe you were talking about um, that there were some lessons that you had learned uh from the first novel going into the second and i and i really felt like you approached that almost like a scientist like okay what didn't work in book one what do i need to fix it how do i need to fix it and i and honestly i feel like you did a very very good job of addressing the things that kind of didn't work in the first one and they and you really made it work in the second well thank you that's that's really nice to hear um and and it was intentional the first book is biographical and it's it's kind of nerdy, and um, it, it's absolutely presumptuous for a person of my age, at my point in my career, to say, I'm going to write a novel, and I did. <laughs> and I'm really proud of that, but looking back on it, it's a little bit slow-moving in places. And so, uh, and you know, it's interesting, um, my friends never told me. <laughs> I asked my friends, I said, look, you know, I can take it. Give me your best shot. Tell me about the book. Oh, it was fine. It was fine. It was fine. And I really liked it. But I could tell just from their expressions that, you know, it was pretty slow. And a lot of people put it down and probably never picked it yeah, up fine again. Yeah, is, fine is never high praise. <laughs> yeah, right. One of the things that uh, that we, we say is, uh, is so-and-so has no friends. Like when, when we read something that's really, really awful. Well, I'm sorry. It started with Kenny Rogers has no friends. Because if he did, his face wouldn't look like that, right? He wouldn't have gotten to the point where he looked like someone ironed his face. And so that's, that's, that's when, you, when you said your friends, that was the first thing I thought of. Because um, my friends, I was very fortunate. They were like, I didn't read it. I, I bought it. I bought your damn book. Leave me alone. <laughs> you get yeah. the same eighty-five whether I read it or not. <laughs> There's a lot of fans of that book, by the way. I hear, still hear good things about it. Um, it's not awful. I'm not trying to tell people not to buy it. But there's always room for improvement. So I decided to take a creative writing course, which I took at Warwick. Um, it's a community college here in, in Worcester and, and uh, Wicomico County. And um, I guess the big take-home lesson is if you're going to write a novel, grab the reader by the throat and don't let her go. Do not digress as digress as little as possible. Develop your characters as quickly as possible. Get on with a story and don't stop. And um, I think that was the that was really good advice. And I think that's the difference in the two books. I would agree. I think when I was going through Ape, as we were first in our you know first round of edits, and I kind of gave you some feedback on you know as I went through it, I was like, well, here's here's my analysis of it. Um, even though we are friends, I felt like I could be very honest and I, I felt like that was a really great part of our relationship. But then going into like the layout process and all that, when, when I read it, I mean, the one thing that I felt that you were very successful with was you just, it just kept moving. You know, it just, we, we moved through, it was concise. There wasn't, you didn't belabor the points of the science, um, you know, of, you know, the, the thing that I was like, are monkeys apes or chimpanzees monkeys or the apes, you know, this sort of thing. But I mean, you, you very succinctly handled it. And I felt that the, the novel was efficient in delivery of material, both of the scientific component, the characters, you, you know, I mean, you could have gone pages on 
we're in the, you know, we're in Africa, we're in Rwanda, we're in the Gishwadi forest. And, you know, you could have lost the reader in pages of that, but you didn't. I felt you were very succinct. And I felt that that was, that was, that, that made the novel work very much. Well, thanks. There's a lot of stuff. Um, there are a lot of outs. I have a file called outs. <laughs> I guess it's called kill your darlings. And, and, mm-hmm. and there's tons of them of that kind of descriptive stuff that I just took out because it slowed the book down. And um, you gave me, you were one of several different readers that gave me some really good feedback that I think was extraordinarily helpful. Um, Probably the major thing was um, to not have the chimpanzees talk. You and several other people said, that's just too much. They don't talk. That's just, that pushes things too far. Um, the golden lion tamarins in 13 gold monkeys did talk and you know, they're kind of small and I told people they don't do this really. Um, but you know, this kind of, uh, talking thing, it's something scientists often do. They try to figure out what their subjects would say if they could talk. So it's a mind exercise. It's called anthropomorphism to try to find out how animals would feel and what they would say in those situations. And it often will direct you as to what to look for in their behavior at a more descriptive level. But the feedback that um, you gave me, that piece of feedback was was really, really valuable. Well, thank you. I'm glad I was hopeful. One of the things actually that I wanted to mention, I I wrote it down before, so it's cool that it came up now, is how much um, what what I've heard of the book reminds me of Cujo. And I don't know if you've read Cujo. Are you familiar? Right. Yeah. Um, I don't think I don't think there's about that one. a lot that's from the point of view of the rabid dog, and you kind of watch the dog go mad over the course of the book. Okay, and it's intercut with pee. I mean, it's about people, but you get the dog's point of view, and there the dog doesn't have dialogue. The dog thinks in terms of feelings, and they're specific enough that we know what's going on, but they're not so specific that. It's unbelievable, and I, I, that was one of the things from from the excerpt that I thought. Well, I thought that was really well well done, and so. Yeah, that was when when so when the first draft came around, uh, when we were looking at it, there were certain spots where, um, you know, certain chimps were kind of having discussion, and I remember, and then there were other parts where Ben did a really good job of revealing the personalities. Uh, and the the motivations of these different uh, members of this particular this uh, chimp group, and he was doing such a good job when he didn't have them talk. And it was almost like the second that I saw dialogue followed by you know mango or stone, right. it lost me. And I remember just telling him like, I you probably don't want to hear this, but you're doing such a good job of revealing their personalities, their motivations dynamics within the group when they don't talk at all and so but then when the second round came back it was so much stronger and it really kind of pulled that to life and so as you're reading this novel that kind of intertwines a chimp group with humans in a human community and there's some uh conflict and some dynamics that occur i mean i'm not going to give away the the book um but there are dynamics that occur between these two communities and how one community reviews it how one community sees the actions of another 
I thought was really well done um, in this particular one, especially once we kind of chopped out all those pieces. And so I want to ask you a direct question about that now then. So in the description, when you, when you have the, with, without dialogue, did you have more of an opportunity to describe that when apes pull back their teeth, it's a sign of submission because the mango didn't say I'm submitting to you or, or something like that? Right. We had to put the reader in the in the situation and give the reader the visual clues, the olfactory clues, um, so that they knew what the apes were doing and how they were communicating. And listeners uh, probably know that there have been attempts to find out whether chimpanzees, quote, have language. And there are chimpanzees, and, um, and in one case an orangutan and another case a gorilla, that have certain capabilities using symbols or um, uh, keys on a, on a computer keyboard that they can actually put together strings of, of meaningful words in a meaningful way. But they lack the vocal apparatus, the tongue, the throat, the lips, to be able to speak in the same way that we do. And, of course, even cognitively, they don't – well, they have certain primitive – attributes of language, they would never be able to write a novel, for example. Sure, sure. Um, but, but a million of them would. Right, well, but, <laughs> but um, I, I could see, in fact, I'm thinking about the third novel. And nice. um, I'm wondering how those laboratory studies of chimpanzees that show certain rudiments of language, and I've been around them all my life, I know them backward and forward, um, how that might play into a into a, a storyline. Right, right. Well, one of the things that I, I was sort of stunned by, and every time you and I talk about, you know, apes and, and monkeys and so I'm, I'm all, I, I feel like I'm always learning something. It's like, you know, the, like the Nat Geo walking around, you know, like <laughs> kind of thing. But one of the things that, you know, when in the novel there's, and this isn't really giving too much away, but there's a moment where they realize that, the chimps kind of understand a bartering system and they kind of realize if I, Oh, the, the human always takes this thing. Well, if I take it and they know I have it, well, they have to give me something to get like, you know, this, the sense right, of trade yeah. and that real, that level of thought for, for that was really kind of riveting to, you know, it was, it was really kind of interesting that they would display, I guess I never really considered it before, but. And, and that's real. Let me tell you a story. Uh, when I was at the National Zoo, we built an exhibit about animal cognition and we had orangutans in there. And I used to put on a demonstration for the public with one orangutan who liked to use tools. So I would give her a whole bunch of long pieces of bamboo and out on a table in front of her cage, I would put some cereal or little treats. And she was able to stick that stick out and rake in the, the little treats, which she couldn't otherwise reach, and get them. And people were amazed by that. That was really cool that apes could use tools in that way. And they do. I mean, they use tools in all sorts of different ways. Um, End of demonstration, people applaud, they go home. Now I got to get the bamboo back. <laughs> okay, how, how do I get the bamboo back? Because if I don't, she's going to turn around and start sticking it out the back of the cage and getting keeper's hoses and all sorts of things that she shouldn't have. Right. So it's like, okay, Inda, give me a piece of bamboo and I will give you a quarter of an orange. 
And she looks at the orange, and she looks at the bamboo, and, okay, she gives me the stick, and I give her the orange. And finally, we're down to little sprigs of bamboo. And I'm, um, she sticks it out, and I give her one Cheerio. And it's like, no. She pulls it back. <laughs> She's like, uh, no, thank you. It's like, Inda, that's not worth a quarter of an orange. That's just a little stick. You can't do any damage with it. The best I'm going to do is a Cheerio, and I'm going to walk away. Okay. So she sticks a stick out. Well, people, lo- people are just amazed to see that the apes not only can trade things, but they have a sense of what it's all worth. Value, yeah. Yeah, that's They know that a big stick is worth more than a little sprig. Right? That's fascinating. Well, finally, Inda got to the point where this was no longer challenging for her. And after the demonstration of the tools was over, she would take all of the sticks and give them to me. Just, I, I would rather not bother with you yeah. and your petty oranges. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to go. Yeah, right. I don't need to go through another half hour of handing them out one by one. Here, now give me all the stuff. Right. I'd, rather, I'd rather take a nap than right. have Give an me orange. all the oranges. Right. Give me the cereal and let's get it over with. Exactly. Well, That's that deprives the, the visitors of seeing this whole trading interaction. You know, the different. So what am I going to do to get her to participate again? Well, what I've got to do is stiffer. Right? She's going to give me all the sticks, and I'm going to walk away. Oh, like, man. You get nothing into sorry. This, this poor girl. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to betray it. She was my good friend. I couldn't yeah. do it. I loved her. So um, that, part of the, that part of the demonstration just crashed. We oh, my gosh. couldn't show it anymore. Well, that's interesting when you talk about, you know, she was my friend. I loved her. The, you know, there's, I think it was back maybe early last spring, there was that personhood case um, with the was it a chimpanzee? Two chimpanzees. And there was that personhood argument, and and we kind of, and ape kind of touches on this, like so. I was just wondering, like, how much of contemporary news, how much of contemporary uh, things that are kind of happening out there filter into your writing, or is it just your work is still very relative and still very contemporary. So does that automatically play into your writing or did you pull that in? Was that part of your thought? Um, actually I've, I've been happy. I've been fortunate to participate in the development of this argument at a philosophical level. I chaired a couple of symposia, edited a book about relationships between apes and humans and what kind of obligations we have toward our animal, the animals in our in our world, and um, there are very serious philosophers out there. I'm not talking about tree huggers. I'm talking about serious philosophers, very serious people. Um, Steve Wise of the Non-Human Animal, uh, Non-Human Primate Rights Project comes to mind. That feel that there are so many compelling similarities, genetically, anatomically, behaviorally, cognitively, between humans and chimpanzees that humans. Des- or that chimpanzees deserve basic human rights. The right not to be um, murdered, the right not to have pain inflicted for no reason, the right to be free, the right to be able to move about freely and choose friends and choose things to do. Basic human rights, or at least the rights of a child. Sure. Right? And um, there were two chimpanzees, the case you refer to, that um, were kept at a, the State University of New York on Long Island and for very valuable research. 
on locomotion, and uh, Steve Wise's group sued the university, saying that they were depriving the chimpanzees of their basic human rights, and they needed to turn the, these chimpanzees over to a sanctuary where they would live out their life in luxury. And the case went all the way up to the, I think it was the New York Appellate Court, and the judge finally found uh, against the chimpanzees, against Wise's case, arguing that um, like other sorts of animals, like cows and dogs, chimpanzees are property. And therefore, they do not have rights. Um, because I think the, other, the flip side of that is if you have rights, then you have responsibilities. And if, you know, some, if, a, if someone with a right to do something commits a crime... Then there's that whole other side. Yes, they may have right to freedom, but what if they do something bad with that freedom? You know, how does well, that then? Well, how about a person who has severe cognitive disabilities? Right. Now, they certainly have basic human rights. Um, do they have responsibilities? Yeah, I, I have two things to say. <laughs> Thing number one, I agree. Thing number two, there are people screaming at their uh, radios right now because they can't participate. <laughs> and thing number yeah. three, we are pulling into the station. Right, right. Well, it's, well. A, it's, a very, it's a very interesting discussion. And one of the parts of it, you know, we see it with, uh, well, you've seen it just this month with um, SeaWorld right. deciding not to, to breed their orcas and, and keep them in captivity for any longer than the ones that are already there. And Ringling Brothers took their elephants out of their, out of their performances and put them right. in a sanctuary uh, because of concerns about their welfare. Right. So this is not a trivial issue in our society. You got mm. these two organizations have millions of dollars riding on, on those, um, on those issues. Um, so, uh, it, it isn't settled yet. Steve Wise is still looking for the right judge in the right case to yeah. be able to establish a, a legal precedent that, that apes have rights. Right. And this is good practice. If we ever meet another life form, we should have a policy or at least a- we should have some experience in how to deal with these little green men, you know? Right. 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 Well, I think, um, yeah, I think that that is, you know, again, when, when real life kind of bleeds into the writing that we do. And so maybe, uh, maybe, maybe that's all uh, options for uh, book three. But uh, so I, I know that recently you were just down in Florida. Um, you were doing some talks with the books. You were um, doing some different things down there. Um, and I think you're back, you're back uh, you know, Maryland side now. So we'll look forward to seeing, seeing more of you doing, uh, doing more with, with Ape. Well, as, uh, as the weather warms up, I think there'll be more opportunities to get out there and do some talks, maybe some articles, maybe some book signing. So it'll be, uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Absolutely. And just real quick, can we get your, your social stuff? You have websites and Twitters and Facebook. Um, for your books. ApeTheNovel.com right. is, the, is the website. So www.apethenovel, all one word, dot com. And um, no, I don't have a Facebook site for the book. Um, oh. I use my own Facebook site, Benjamin B. Beck, and you can find a lot of stuff about the book on there. Now, that's right. your own personal? Yep. Yeah, yep. personal page, yeah. So cool. we, we'll make sure that there's a link to that as well as a link to buy the book on the podcast uh, webpage. So we'll make sure all that information is there for anybody that wants to uh, take a gander. And I highly recommend it. It's, it's Like I said, it's very succinct, very efficient, good read. 
A lot of fun. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We'll have you back soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Ben. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Find us at saltwatermedia.com and on social media. Want to hear more? Just follow along by subscribing on iTunes to hear more behind-the-story stories. Want other people to hear more? Give us a great review on iTunes. Tell your story.